Hello and welcome to The Humanities District, a podcast about creativity and community in higher education. I'm Jay Howard, a senior instructor in communication. I like to talk to academics and alumni in Springfield, Missouri about their work. And today our topics are AI and post-truth. Our guest today is Heather Walters. Heather is also a senior instructor in communication and my office neighbor just down the hall in Craig Hall. Heather, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Jay. I'm so excited to be here to chat about those important topics. Yes, those and those and other topics. You know, longtime listeners to the podcast may notice that I've had at least one episode uh, focused on AI um, earlier in the feed, um, and that was with Stacy Rice, who's a um, educational. Uh, Oh, darn, I can't remember her exact yeah, title. Uh, she works in the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning, and I listened to that episode of the podcast and also found it fascinating. Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, and, and the amazing thing, too, about that, um, about Stacy is, I mean, I had just learned that what chatbots even were and was immediately starting to panic about it, and there was Stacy already um, creating explainers for, for us. Um, so I was really um, appreciative of her efforts. And similarly, though, you know, Chatbot just came on the scene. I I don't know what its first birthday was, but it's not very old, Chatbot yeah, GPT. It was basically November 2022. And when was your intercession course on the same topic offered. That would be like Christmas of Right. So uh, the, I taught year. this intercession for the first time in the winter 2024 nice. intercession. So the Janu- just this past January. So, I mean, there's not that much time between when this dawned on the popular consciousness in a real way and when people have started to develop courses and trainings um, for students. And I see your courses as on the, you know, the forefront of that. As an academic advisor, I'm getting emails from students saying, hey, is there a certificate in in AI? Um, Are there classes I can take? And I was able to point them right to your intercession class. So I'm excited to talk about that uh, today. Well, my inspiration for creating the intercession was to be able to engage the students in a topic where the level of excitement about it is obviously palpable. I mean, people know that AI has the potential to reshape a lot of what people know and experience in our society. And I just think it's really important that we have the opportunity to talk through the implications the technology uh, will have on our future. And I think students are really interested in those topics, like you said. So, And those conversations can really make a difference in how the technology is ultimately used and deployed in society. Like people being able to feel like they are participants in the kind of global conversation about the role AI should play in our life will be important to how we all decide to, you know, eventually integrate it more fully into our daily life. Yeah. Pedagogically, it's, yeah, it was a perfect storm of an interesting topic, a timely topic, and a useful topic. And 
as far as the content, like before we even get to how it should be used, the fundamental questions of what even is it? How does it work? What are its capabilities? You know, people just need information at all levels about about what it is, how to use it. And so how is this um, or how did you approach it as a communication course? Is it about how people should interact with AI or how we use AI itself to communicate? Um, and, and also for listeners, I should specify, this is a special topics intercession comm class using our, our beloved course code COM397. Yeah, so it was a week-long class, so we were a little bit limited on the scope of what we could talk about, but we addressed how uses of AI could affect communication and media professionals in the workplace, like what role it might have in job replacement or how will the nature of the communication or media professions change uh, as AI becomes more dominant in the workplace. We chatted about the risks, uh, potential risks of AI. We chatted about how AI influencers are becoming more popular and what role we think those individuals uh, or characters should play uh, in society. And I tried to kind of make a breadth of topics that would be interesting to students and highlight for them both what the technology can do, benefits and risks. And I received a lot of interesting comments uh, about the class, like people said things like, I would define my experience with this course as enlightening, or my knowledge was limited about AI and this course completely changed my perspective, or I learned a lot about how society is evolving and I'm blown away about what the technology can do. Uh, and That's awesome. uh, I thought that was really fulfilling to be able to engage students in talking about something that they are really interested and excited in. It seems like basically a educator's dream to have a whole group of people who are just excited to be there to talk about something that they think is going to be really relevant to their daily life moving forward. What more I could agree more. we really ask for? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's definitely a win-win. You said uh, AI influencers, and, and then you use the word character. Is this is it like there's are there influencers who are just total chatbots? Yeah, or, totally or created by AI. Wow. And the you know potential benefit of them to companies is that you can work twenty four seven if you are an AI generated uh, influencer, but at the same time the ability to regulate what an AI influencer oh. can say is yeah. limited because in the end they are not actual people that mm -hmm. laws and regulations can apply to. So just whether people realize that it's possible for companies to or advertise using AI yeah. and what those individuals or chatbots could be telling them. Goodness. Because they look real. 
Yeah. yeah. This isn't like uh, Clippy from Microsoft Word is the hype man for Hershey's chocolate or something. This is uh, like an actual avatar mm-hmm. of actual, a person. It looks like a real person. Looks like a real person is telling you to that this product or service is the best possible thing you could buy or invest in. Yeah. And they are not real. <laughs> well, we, we emailed a little bit about the horsemen of the apocalypse in preparation for our, <laughs> our conversation today. And I'm just going to count that as one of them. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not comfortable with chatbots running around telling me what to think and buy and do. Um, but I was glad for the opportunity. Like if somebody doesn't know that that yeah. is a possibility, if I could tell someone and spread that message, I felt like kind of... My work here is done. I've done something positive uh, <laughs> yeah. for the future because I warned somebody that this was possible. You're raising awareness that the storm is coming. At least that's my words. Um, that and there, uh, this is, that there is a horseman out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and you know we're in we are in an election year, um, and we have kind of this new technology. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it. Deep fakes. And I mean, I just feel like we're in a Black Mirror episode of what's the craziest thing we can think of that could derail us. And that will just it, history will show that our, our imaginations were just not up to the task of predicting the crazy things that we're about to see, I'm afraid. Um, yeah. Well, I kind of think that is where our role as educators becomes even more important. There's a whole world of possibility and of risk, but the role that we can play in shaping uh, that future can hopefully make it more positive than negative, and we can explain what could happen if we let things go too far in one direction, Yeah. but we can harness all of the ways that this tool can maybe improve our lives. That's so important because I, I do think I get carried away focusing on the potential negatives or afraid that the negatives will outweigh the positives without really giving due um, consideration to the positive ways, pro-social even, ways that these technologies could be used. We also did AI-oriented assignments in the special topics class, which kind of helped highlight for students, you know, what AI is currently good at, how it could be an addition to the learning environment, but some things you might not want to use the technology for as a part of your education, you know, and allowing them to kind of see how the technology works, even introduced them to the potential academic risks and benefits of it. People are usually just worried about plagiarism, you know, Cheating. And cheating as it relates to student use of AI. But there are ways that we, as educators, can integrate it into what we do to make education practices even better. Yeah, let me ask you more about that. And kind of the context is, you know, when I was looking at the courses that you teach, I saw going back through the semesters as many as 15 different course codes some of those were um, the same class on the graduate and undergraduate level. But do you favor the online uh, teaching format or to the in-person teaching format? Or um, do you do a little bit of both? Or w- where would you put your um, 
primary pedagogical focus right now? For the past few years, I have taught primarily uh, online and I enjoy teaching uh, online. I appreciate how online education allows uh, less traditional students or students in other environments, states, countries to take advantage of the opportunities that Missouri State uh, has to offer. And I think that there are a lot of positive benefits uh, to learning online. For example, when I first started doing it, I thought, wow, students are more engaged with the textbook than they are in my live classes because in a live class, people might expect you to tell them what was in the book. But in an online class, if they don't read the book, no one is really reading it to them. (laughs) And they would make more comments about the quality and what was in the examples that were in the book. And I thought uh, that was fascinating. And I do think that when properly delivered by people who have online experience, that the being in an online class is just as or more valuable than a traditionally seated class. I, I enthusiastically agree with you on that. Um, and I know, you know, people have all kinds of opinions on online education, whether they want to take them or not as a student, whether they want to teach them or not as a, as a teacher. But I do think there's definitely an uh, important role for online education in that it can be equivalent to um, or exceed the quality of a seated class. Um, and in, in your case, you have had the experience of, of writing a textbook that is new, um, several textbooks. So what I'm thinking of right now is Communication Ethics, uh, Promoting Truth, Responsibility, and Civil Discourse in a Polarized Age. And the benefit of having a brand new book that you're intimately familiar with as a, as a producer was that there's a robust like online components to this book or a whole like ebook section um, or version. I'd love to learn more about it. And I don't know. I just I've been out of the classroom for a little bit uh, doing my academic advising thing. But I want to get back into teaching as well. And I want to learn how to do what you're doing. So uh, what was the process like of developing this book? And and I'm interested in the online components as well. Uh, I've heard things about it from students where they have said exactly what you were saying, that like they're getting more out of the text because it sort of forces them to read it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how. Like, it sounds like you've done a magic trick. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd been teaching communication ethics for uh, quite a while and then decided I was interested in creating a textbook about it as I became more interested after writing my argumentation textbook. And we were studying disinformation and its role in creating a barrier to objective argumentation. And then I started thinking about it more and I was like, in many ways, disinformation is just another form of theoretically unethical uh, communication. That's a good point. Uh, So I started thinking more about the role that ethical communication could play in just improving the quality of society, like if more people knew how to navigate the situations that are created 
by factors like disinformation, then we could help overcome the theoretical crisis that could be created by stuff like that. And ethics books were notoriously uh, traditional and older, and I was finding that there weren't a lot of current case studies in ethics textbooks that described how communication ethics was relevant to the current daily life of students, considering technology uh, and all of the different things that are happening in the world. So I wanted to create a book that was very current, that had case studies that were a part of it, and allowed students to apply traditional ethical concepts to current events. So the beginning of every chapter of my book presents a current issue or topic, and then the rest of the chapter kind of gives them some theoretical tools and suggestions for how they might address that topic that are also applicable to lots of other parts of their life. And it was also true when I started researching current ethics books that hardly any of them had an online or interactive uh, component. Instructors that I interviewed would say uh, things like, yeah, there's just no online tools. So in creating the ethics book, I included interactive lessons, which students have to like go in and, you know, match words or explain what concepts apply to what theories or fill in the blanks of paragraphs that help illustrate course concepts. And there are interactive videos that they watch and questions pop up as they watch them. And the videos okay. are about uh, topics that are ethically oriented or about maybe the case study that is relevant to the chapter. And so they watch videos and inter get to interact uh, with them. And I think that really helps the text reach the students where they are. And that was what I wanted to do because ethics is something that you can think is very traditional and very theoretically ancient, but you have to bring that to life to today's current student. And you can't do that without injecting some form of current event and use of technology uh, into the process. I love the, um, the videos that have questions throughout and that must be what the student was meaning in terms of like forcing them to actually watch the video. Um, I assume, can they can they speed it up, slow it down? Uh, do they have that option? I don't think maybe as much as they would want, <laughs> but it's all in an, the educational platform of the publisher. So uh, after they have heard like a segment of the video, it would ask them a question about something that they've yeah. heard. Uh, so far, and then they answer the question, and the video continues to play uh, after that. I'm assuming, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're an early adopter of Brightspace. Are you teaching in Brightspace now? Uh, I have been to many trainings about Brightspace and feel comfortable with it, but my current courses uh, aren't on Brightspace. That's primarily because I was worried about students having to interact with multiple platforms uh, at yeah. once. I didn't want to make that more difficult for them. And since I teach some of the core, like 
intro classes in the major. I didn't want students to face a barrier with navigating different platforms and different uh, classes. Uh, so I stuck with Blackboard for now, but I'm excited to use Brightspace when it becomes available or mandated. Yeah, <laughs> I'm in a Brightspace um, learning group, the, the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning right now, led by Katie Hogeman, um, and I'm learning a lot um, and I'm excited about it. I mean, one of the things that I would grumble about as an instructor in semesters past was that the publisher's online you know, software didn't integrate very well into Blackboard, the learning management system. And so, you know, I'd have to manually input the grades on the quiz over in um, MediaShare or whatever it was called uh, and put them into Blackboard or take some sort of action to facilitate it instead of it being seamlessly integrated. Um, I know that that's always changing and, and there's all kinds of different services. What's your, what is your experience or what's your take on that ball of wax? Uh I wish every publisher could have a seamless integration to yeah. a learning management system, but I experienced the same thing, actually. Uh, my books are published with Cognella, and their platform doesn't sync directly with Blackboard, so I've been doing what you mentioned for quite a while. I can, like, organize the assignments and then Cognella's platform, like, as one module for students though, so they can go one place and see everything that they need to do on the platform. And then I transfer the grades. But I also That's use cool. a lot of other tools from McGraw-Hill uh, that integrate a little bit better uh, with learning management okay. systems. And I have also started using Packback for discussions, which also integrates pretty well. Uh, with Blackboard. So while it's not 100% seamless yet, I look forward to the day where all of it will be easy. <laughs> Very nice. Well, between now and my second block effective listening class coming up next semester, I need to learn what Packback is uh, <laughs> and Perusal and Brightspace and figure out what, what's going to work for me. Um, and I, I assume anyone listening who is also teaching and trying to wrap their heads around a landscape that's changing and the things they're learning are becoming antiquated the moment they learn them because now there's this new cool thing where all our heads are spinning. But I think the key is just not to get overwhelmed and like pick one or two things, figure them out and, and just do baby steps semester by semester. I agree with that largely. Last semester, I spent most of my time, you know, in trainings and learning how I will use a bright space mm. in the future. This is the first semester I've integrated the Packback tool into my classes. So now I'm kind of focused on how can I best incorporate uh, that uh, for students. But I think all of these tools are things that if used effectively can improve the learning process for students and yeah. make them feel comfortable and engaged in the class. And that's my goal. That's the goal. You have um, taught the um, intercession course code quite a lot going back over past the semesters. I was surprised at how many uh, I had seen. Um, do you teach the same, the same topic over and over, or do you have different ones each time? Uh, different ones each time. And what really speaks to me about 
the special topics classes are, I really like being able to incorporate current events into what uh. I teach. I think that, you know, accessing things that people are interested in and that are relevant to daily life is so important and hmm. special topics courses give us a way to do that in a very particular sense. That's and, what they're for, yeah. Yeah, and so past ones I've taught include uh, reviving civility in America. Uh, I've taught that one a few times. It is, It was in response to some of the previous election uh, drama and how people should be able to respond to civic conversations. Uh, I've taught public relations law as a special topics class where we can investigate like current issues about intellectual property or defamation and those all have a really current uh, component to them like how should we update our practices as public relations professionals uh, related to those important topics. And uh, I enjoy, I have a real just like personal interest in current events. Uh, I like to read news and be constantly yeah. learning things. So I think I'm a more engaged teacher when I can speak about topics that I think are just very relevant to our daily life. Very cool. Well, and that's built into the life of a debater as well, right? It is. Um, I, <laughs> or, or I imagine that's where I kind of got it from. Or maybe <laughs> they were just, maybe it's what attracted me, but it definitely developed out of that. Well, before we get into the, um, the post-truth argumentation book, let's, um, let's go into a little bit of your background, um, especially with debate. So I see you have uh, the BS from Missouri State, and then we have a, a JD from Maryland School of Law, and then an MA from Missouri State as well. Is that right? Did I get that uh, right? Yeah, I have a MA in Com from Missouri State, and I also have a master's degree in educational administration. Oh, wow. Uh, K-12 uh, from Missouri State. I just recently finished that uh, degree, actually. So congratulations. Just kind of a lifelong learner. That's awesome. Um, I um, aspire to also be a lifelong learner. Um, so when did you first get involved in debate and forensics? Uh, that is a pretty long story. Uh, okay. But my parents helped me discover my passion for speech and debate. Uh, basically, when I was younger, I was having some teachers who were reporting to my parents that they were concerned that I was extremely shy. Oh, And so my parents' response to that was when I was in eighth grade to require that I enroll in a speech class when it was offered uh, as an elective, which I thought was going to be horrible. <laughs> I was not excited uh, to do that, but that class was the spark for me for debate. We had an assignment in the speech class to participate in a debate. And wow. the teacher, after we did it, was just like, Heather, I saw your eyes light up in a way that I've never seen before when you were debating. And that's when I learned that 
debate was an activity that valued intelligence and knowledge about current events and constantly evolving to learn new things and also rewarded competitiveness and stubbornness. And I guess those were all qualities that I possessed. And so I was instantly basically drawn to it. And then right after we did that assignment in the eighth grade speech class, the high school debaters came and visited to recruit us to join the high school debate team. And they also mentioned that debate was great training for being a lawyer if that was something you were interested in. And for as long as I could remember when I was little, I always wanted to be a lawyer. I would watch like all kinds of court TV oriented shows <laughs> and true crime uh, shows. And I was like, I want to be a lawyer. So when my teacher had said that and someone else told me that if you want to be a lawyer, you need to do this, I was all for that. Hmm. It was also why I ended up taking Latin because someone at one point told me that if I wanted to be a lawyer, I needed to know Latin. So I was like, okay, if that's what I need to do to be a lawyer, I will do that. And so for most of the beginning of my life, I was doing all of these things to prepare me to go to law school. So I debated throughout high school. I got one of my assistant coaches in high school was a college debater at Emporia State, where I'm from, Emporia, Kansas. Uh, and he was coming to join the coaching staff at what was then Southwest Missouri State and said, you should consider debating in college and you should consider doing it at Southwest Missouri State. And I had gotten some academic scholarship offers and at the same time had someone saying I should do college debate. And so even though I hadn't heard of the school pri prior to the receiving mail uh, from them and talking to someone about debate at the school, I ended up here as an undergrad and participated in debate okay. the entire time. I was here. It was foundational to my experience as an undergrad. I mean, I basically think that no other single activity has been more beneficial for or impactful on my life as my hmm. participation in speech and debate. Yeah. It, like you said, it cultivates so many things we think of as virtues, you know, not only, like you said, stubbornness and competitiveness, but also, would you say empathy as well, because it forces perspective taking um, with even sometimes you're arguing for things you might not personally, you know, agree with. So you have to put yourself in the mindset of someone who might be on another side of an issue. Definitely. I think empathy, I think tolerance, I think that I was able to experience traveling to so many new places hmm. uh, for speech and debate competitions in high school and college and just getting out of your comfort zone and where you are directly from and seeing the way other people live, yeah. even if it's just in the United States, which is all the debate tournaments I've been to are in the United States. But even that was so profound in my experience seeing big cities for the first time, flying on an airplane uh, for the first time. I've been to 
now all 48 states uh continental contiguous u.s states or whatever primarily based on participation uh, in debate tournaments and that alone broadened my perspective so much over what i would have otherwise experienced yeah so so valuable communication does attract um some pre-law students people who are interested in, in that you know as i'm thinking about the advisees i see and a lot of them are curious as to whether debate um, is good prep for law school. Would you would you recommend it? And also, did Latin turn out to be of use? Highly recommend debate as preparation for law school. <laughs> a little less Latin. Okay. Uh, but I'm sure it didn't hurt. It definitely gave me a foundation about key terms. But debate was profound in its ability to prepare me uh, for law school. One story I tell about that is just what you were referencing earlier, like being able to see both sides of an issue. Uh, when I went to try out for the trial team at the University of Maryland, which is like something that people generally think is an honor in law school, people want to be a part uh, of it, at least they did at the University of Maryland. They had us come in and prepare a closing argument on one side of a case. And the first time we got to pick what side we wanted. And so everybody came in and delivered uh, their closing argument. And then they had a round of cuts. Ah. And then for the second round, they said, okay, now for the second round of participation, you need to prepare a closing argument on the other side, not the one you Ah. did before. And I saw some people kind of crumble honestly, because they picked the side they agreed with and they had not as much capacity to give a closing argument for the side that they didn't agree with. Whereas the people I knew in law school, like me with debate experience, were able to Uh. do that basically seamlessly. So give a very similar, you know, in quality performance on both sides because we could understand the value of and ability to speak on both sides uh, of a question. Yeah. I mean, that exercise, we, we may um, take it for granted, but it really is mind-blowing when you encounter the task the first time to like, because uh, I, I, you know, I teach the um, public speaking class and they do that sometimes in the persuasive speech uh, unit. And it, it's, um, it's a, it can be a profound experience. I think, like, it, I think it's really such important training for getting people to see the other side of issues. And I wish, and I think that that could really benefit society as a whole, you know, so many of the disputes or controversies that exist in the world could be more minimized or tolerated if people just understood the other perspective. And nothing helps you understand the other perspective as much as like, I have to speak in favor uh, of yeah. it. It's, it's like, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'll, hu- I'll humor this person and imagine for one second that they are not a satanic Yeah, they're not. Cannibal. They're not the most evil know. person ever. Yeah. They are just a person with a different opinion. And you have areas of agreement. And if you can see that, uh, then maybe yeah. you can have a conversation with them about the small areas of disagreement that might exist between the two of you and 
overall our communication practices will improve. There's a term, I think it's from Kenneth Burke, where he talks about technology for living. And I think about just mental technology or ha just having concepts to think with. And as I was reading through the detailed table of contents of the post-truth book, uh, I mean, there was a there were a bunch of sections in there that I was like, man, I should I need to take this class. I know what inductive reasoning and deductive reasoning, but like, I don't think there used to be a thing called abductive reasoning. Uh, it wasn't. <laughs> so, it's so relatively like, new. I thought it was yeah. important to include. Yeah, new reasoning types, and and there, that's just one example off the top of my head of of all kinds of just really meaty, um, interesting things. Um, so, like with every other class I th that our discipline has, it should be a required class. <laughs> for Not for our major, but for every major. And um, more people could take it. Uh, in the lifelong learning uh, that that's we true. do, we could all learn from each other. <laughs> I agree. Well, so, yeah, let's dive in. Um, I think maybe a possible title for the this episode is Post-Truth Truth. Truth. Um, and I don't know, just something hopeful about the concept of, of I don't know, standing up for the thing that facts are still real, um, okay. even yeah. though um, even in a, a world full of photography, which is another new word for me, um, faux that's spelled with an X. Yeah. Um, F-A-U-X. So, yes. <laughs> Post-truth. It's a term that's thrown around a lot. How would you how would you define it? And what is its you know, recent history. Okay. The title of the book is Understanding Argument in a Post-Truth World. And I think what we meant by a post-truth world is one in which the society tends to value opinions and beliefs and appeals to emotion over objective facts. And the book is an attempt to help students navigate a world where uh, opinion and belief and emotion is dominating discussion and be able to infuse some objective truth into those conversations. When uh, we do workshops about the book, a section of the workshop is often a pedagogy of truth. And I'm a believer that the reinvigoration of a focus on truth is important and vital to solving a lot of society's communication problems. <sighs> this is like a, a breath of fresh air. I, I'm just really <laughs> so. Yeah, I know that you mentioned you love um, case studies. Can you can you give us an example of? And because and I, I know there's in, endless examples, both sort of on the right and on the left, of like, we're valuing emotion more than what the facts on the ground may be. Um, but so, so I don't know, what's, what's an example of a time when post-truth when uh, post -truth has sort of reigned supreme in the narrative? Does that, does that question make sense? Uh, a little. So one uh, article that I've worked on, uh, some research that I'm presenting at the Western States Communication Association Conference next week is about climate change discourse. Okay. Uh, and the role that disinformation has played in our ability to make effective policy uh, regarding 
uh, carbon emissions and reactions to global warming, where there is arguably scientific consensus on the issue that human-induced behaviors are causing uh, climate change. Countries have been unable to really effectively act to reduce that because they are concerned uh, about disinformation or mm -hmm. um, opinions uh, that happen on the other side. And Yeah, that's a really good example. And it shows how so many of these big issues are like our stance on them are an identity marker where it's like, um, if if I identify as a certain, I don't know, political persuasion, for example, I'll be more likely to believe something that substantiates my pre-existing beliefs and less likely to, be, I'll be more critical of it if it challenges them. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not on the basis of critically evaluating the information. It's just based on how I feel or um, how I feel like it validates myself as a person <laughs> and the I, commitments I've already made, you know? Yeah, I think what you're talking about is kind of the role partisanship has played in our society or how society okay. has become more, more polarized on the basis yeah. of uh, political uh, affiliation where some people will say, just if someone has a different party affiliation than me, they are a bad person uh, or they believe things that are totally unacceptable uh, to me. Uh, one of the videos that I show as an interactive video in one of my uh, classes is about how there's been a, a study that there's been a decrease in people's ability to like spend an entire Thanksgiving dinner with family members because political controversies come up and polarization means that people have to think certain ways about those controversies and they just decide to have Thanksgiving dinner be like an hour instead of an hour and a half like you know it average you know used to be or uh, huh. whatever and what that says about the state of society probably isn't positive but if we could like we kind of mentioned earlier like understand that people have more similarities than differences then maybe the need to divide every issue into you know this party believes this or this group of people believes this based on identity not we could actually overcome some of the policy paralysis that exists on some issues right. and make positive changes that need to happen the focus on common ground is is i mean it's a, it's an important thing to insist upon because, um, you know, as I was doing some reading on polarization, I, I ran across the term um, affective polarization, where it's it's not that we think differently. It's that we feel like the other person thinks differently. Or I just, you know, if I'm strongly polarized, I have automatic negative feelings towards someone with a different label, regardless of what they believe or don't believe. Well, regardless of the truth of what they might believe or don't believe or how different or similar it is. Yep. Um, You're so right. Uh, I, As it relates to what we were talking about earlier about AI, I'm working on a book chapter about 
AI activities to engage students in the democratic process. And so mm. one of the things I thought about was, given my, the rest of my background, was AI-enabled civic debates. And something that AI can do really fast is summarize content and yeah. point out like issues of similarity and then <laughs> is effective at saying like these are the outliers these are the these are areas of difference and one thing that i hope theoretically that that can do is demonstrate to students if this was an activity in a class you know that there are more areas of agreement than disagreement here are the things that we can note as areas of disagreement and we can talk about those but if we start from the premise that there are lots of things that a lot of people agree on we can navigate conversations in a totally new hmm. way that's really interesting especially real-time live public forums to apply that mm -hmm. to it and that would be really hard like a lot of even political debates that people have watched on TV end up devolving over a disagreement about a particular fact. But right. AI could both like maybe answer the question about that fact and highlight for people that there are areas of agreement. And so the traditional and stereotypical like vitriol that people think needs to exist in order for a debate can happen doesn't <laughs> need to exist because we can you know evolve into having conversations that discuss both areas of similarity and areas of difference you know an email came along the transom about ideas for things that could uh, that a potential digital humanities lab could could do oh. and equipment that such a lab should should contain there could be a connection here between what we're talking about and um, and the and di the digital humanities, it doesn't have to just be X-raying an old scroll to decode what it says. It could also be the sort of democracy promoting materials that you're talking about. Yeah, and uh, I think that all of that is evolving in such interesting ways. I've heard, you know, political candidates are making chatbots of themselves to like help interact with constituents and answer their questions wow. and. And then, you know, so that's a use of the technology, but another Surrogates. use is like, you know, help both helping constituents answer questions about political issues and helping us have potentially more civil policy discussions about issues using AI platforms. Because lots of those will be like, I, you know, I'm not going to say mean things about the other side. I will report, you know, what has been happening, what you've no. said, the points in favor or against an issue, but AI, you know, without it being programmed to be as such isn't mean. It's like a polite, neutral platform that can help us have conversations that left to our own human devices might become more controversial than necessary. <laughs> Well, that's all very noble, but uh, I'm I'm now possessed of the idea of like I want to m figure out a way to build and market chatbots that will say mean things about my <laughs> opponent. <laughs> well, uh, there are AI platforms as to be like in the Horseman of the Apocalypse sense. Yeah, people yeah. have created LLMs that will 
only feed disinformation out to people. And do they um, masquerade as a different as a, some source that they're not, or yeah, something? To they get masquerade as like you know I'm going to give you accurate information, but they're 100% programmed to be inaccurate wow. information. Yeah. And you know people with the skills can create LLMs that are hold all the information like pretty quickly. Wow. And unless people know where they're getting their information from, in a political sense those are the things that yeah. kind of put us on the track to more risky AI interventions than potentially what I'm hoping for, which <laughs> is the use of it to you know, promote rather than destroy democratic engagement. Yeah. So much of it is benign to, you know, as I scroll through my social media feeds, I see a lot of like images with quotes over the image. Um, that are mostly, like I said, benign. They're not political in nature. But I don't think a human being ever made any of them. I think they're all generated by, you know, just to get engagement. Um, same with the videos. I, I don't know. As I as we go into the the election year, kind of to return to that topic, my first thought was that I should um, sort of reduce my consumption of, of screen time to sort of fortify my soul against the corrosive, uh, you know, vitriol to come. I do think it's going to get bad, you know, later on this year. And because we've, you know, lived through some election cycles that have been bad. And that was before there was AI like there is now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, just as many people are working to make the world a better place and trying to use the technology in a way that will move things forward in a more positive direction, and some of these are really savvy campaign operatives, you know, who are who are trying to safeguard, um, you know, put the bumpers up on the the bowling alley um, for us I, to 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 kind of get that to a question. Um, and I don't think I've asked this yet, um, and except for maybe before we started recording. What do you expect um, as we as we get into the election? What should we guard our guard against? How can we help? And you know, asking for myself. I think that is a great question, Jay. Uh, You're right. Uh, I think the research shows that 4.2 million people will go to the polls in 2024 in 64 countries. So basically, 49% of the world is having elections or participating uh, in elections right after we've had all of the excitement about Uh, especially generative AI and what it can do. Uh, People, there are lots of headlines that you've probably read too that say like elections and disinformation are colliding in 2024 in ways like they never have. Uh, People, like the, I read a study from the World Economic Forum that said that misinformation and disinformation from AI will be the top global risk over the next two years. And they evaluated that as even ahead of climate change and war and other big problems. Nuclear proliferation, pandemics. Because generative AI has given us the capacity to produce material like deep fake video and audio, and we can mass produce it. It can be generated really fast for really cheap. It's very sophisticated. It's hard for the average human 
to discern what is and is not true or real. Uh, I can't. I can't tell. And that is really why I think that the focus on ethics is so important Hmm. for society moving forward because the only way that we are gonna be able to counter uh, some of the problems that deep fakes and other disinformation could pose to the election process is if we have educated people to look out for potential disinformation that there are more people like you you know who are (laughs) educated and worried about what they're consuming and where it's coming from because it could be very hard for people to know the difference and if we have conversations about these things then maybe regulation could happen faster about how Hmm. ai works you know governments and companies are working uh, on things now like provenance you know being able to say like when something is authentic and not okay. uh, authentic and that yeah, could yeah. be a move forward, you know, because if we, you know, media outlets that are traditionally providing objective information can mark their content as this is, you know, definitely authentic and you can tell that versus the people who are unwilling to mark their things uh, in similar ways, uh, right, that right. could happen. But kind of, I think people are worried about 2024 because a lot of the regulations or ways to deal with this information haven't been totally formulated yet. So there is going to be like a role the average citizen has to play in being watchful in thinking about what information they are consuming and where it's from and doing their own research to determine what their position is uh, on issues and letting them know the vehicles that exist to do that uh, is important and explaining to people why that's important is also necessary. And that's what I also kind of hope my focus on ethics does. Absolutely. And as an educator, that's so important. It brings me back to this article that I uh, mentioned um, before we got on mic um, from this is from an education week classroom technology um, I don't know article and the quote here says um, if educators this is a quote if educators aren't already thinking about teaching students about deep fakes they really should be because this is in the water that their students are swimming in every day so I think all of us who are educators at all levels you know we bear responsibility for cultivating digital literacy related to our discipline. Um, And, you know, I don't want to belabor the point, but I was just scrolling through Instagram the other day and I ran across this video of a duck in a pond. Beautiful orange, iridescent green, yellows and blues on the feathers of this duck. And I was like, I think this might not be a real duck. (laughs) Uh, and so I, I then it sent me on this mission of like to find out is there really a species of duck that looks like this or is or did some AI video generation create it? Turns out the duck was real, so I was actually too skeptical. And there there are things that beautiful in the world I, that I just didn't know about. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we don't have time to Google every single thing we see or or hear. Um, and so even those of us who are skeptical and vigilant are still going to get some fake stuff in our heads. 
in the shoebox of things that we think we know to be true. Um, so yeah, people, I think, I really believe strongly we need to take it seriously and put in some quality checks as much as possible for our information. So I, I think we were talking about AI influencers earlier, which yeah. is kind of a different version of deep fakes. And one thing that was notable about that to me in my special topics class is the students who didn't know that that was a thing. And so what you talk about, about skepticism, that can get overwhelming for people, but telling students and making sure that they know that it's no longer exactly true anymore, that like what you see is what you believe, because there are risks inherent in that, and we need to be skeptical of content that we consume and try to be vigilant. Yeah, we can't Google every single thing, but I think that's also where another strategy that researchers are using, like pre-bunking, comes in, that if we know that there's going to be a message that is given to uh, the public that is inaccurate, countering that in advance, like giving a clear message in advance that this is what people will tell you, this is what is wrong, about it. This is what you might consider as an alternative perspective uh, to that information is what researchers say is a form of inoculating the public to Hmm. kind of the inevitable disinformation that they might encounter in the process. And that has been shown to be more effective than telling people just after the fact that, you know, what you saw might not have been a duck. But if you tell people in advance that you might see this picture of a duck and it is not not a duck, and here's why it's not a duck, you know, they react better to that. But once people are convinced it's a duck, then you can't do anything about it. And that's not 100% accurate as an example, because that duck really was a a real (laughs) duck. Uh, But I think that it makes the point uh, pretty well that there are a long list of things that educators and others can do to promote digital literacy and everything that we do uh, to help move that along is going to hopefully help somebody uh, not be fooled by uh, information, whether it's in regard to election 2024 or just other forms of sponsored content or inaccurate information that you might encounter on the internet, just having a, always having an eye toward, you know, what is this information? Where did it come from? Can it be verified is a little bit about what we just have to do as citizens uh, now and providing students the tools uh, to do it is part of our uh, obligation as educators and hopefully doing that and encouraging people to be ethical communicators in the process will help fix this for us. And at least that's what, that's what I've come to intersect all of these interests together as one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, it's, it's a realistic message and a hopeful message. Um, Yeah. Just staying ahead of it, staying on top of it. And uh, until, (laughs) until, and alongside the coming of, you know, regulations. Did you read that? I think there was a CNN story just yesterday about how 
one-fifth of adults in the United States believe Taylor Swift is involved in a government effort to help Joe Biden win the 2024 presidential election, even though there's no factual evidence to support uh, that theory, but it's moved into the public discourse for... Isn't it strange how things take on a life of their own? Yeah. Yeah. You know, but the popularity of Taylor Swift right now and its relationship to the NFL. And then if she did say people should vote, you know, and in the past has supported uh, President Biden. But whether that means she's a part of a broad conspiracy to get one candidate elected over another is like taking it to a whole other level. Right. But some people obviously believe that. So if we think about what that means to the future of election 2024, you know. It's bad news. Yeah, I saw saw what purported itself to be a video of Taylor Swift talking about uh, endorsing political candidates. And I, I have no idea whether it was real or not. If it was real, it was from 10 years ago, maybe. Um, but I think it probably just wasn't real. Mm-hmm. And I just scrolled past it because, like I said before, I can't Google everything. But one of the things that is, is that's hopeful to me is, like, since when did Googling something become, like, the, the weapon against misinformation? Because there was a time when we were very scared and that Google would be one of the horsemen of the apocalypse. Or, um, because I remember this was many years ago and stuff, but we were teaching credible sources to students and we're like, you know, be skeptical of of Google and Wikipedia, don't use it. Um, But as years have gone by, these services have matured, you know, especially Wikipedia um, as an example, Mm -hmm. where things that were once new and scary are now normal and helpful and I can't imagine the world without them. Um, And I, I assume that like chatbots will get to that point as well, just as long as they don't tear the world apart first, which is always kind of iffy, but, you know, we made it this far. far. So I think what you say brings up two interesting things. One is what you're basically describing is the strategy of lateral reading, which is like confirming, when you hear a fact, confirming that, you know, someone else, you know, besides one website that you found on Google believes that triangulated but if it's in multiple places then that's like kind of a better sign that it could be accurate uh information uh and then just like this is also back to what i was referring to earlier about the pedagogy of truth that there are traditional valued media sources that don't spread disinformation they are largely accurate We have used them for years. They have fact checkers. They take great care uh, to make sure that their media professionals are giving us accurate information. And people need to know that about those things, you know, uh, that there are trusted media sources. You can and should go to them in some instances. And like, then there are others that are less trustworthy, but knowing the difference uh, is important, but also knowing that there are places you can go that are going to likely tell you the truth. The truth exists, (laughs) places will tell you it and give you the tools to get accurate information. You just have to be a part of it. 
Sounds very X, X files y. <laughs> the truth is out there. It's out there. Uh, we, we can find it. Yeah, it's just overcoming the, the sense of um, overwhelmedness or learned helplessness or disorientation. I mean, I, I remember feeling that way about trying to understand what, what my tax return would eventually show, whether I'd get a, a, a refund. And it just it just seems unknowable. Like until until I get to the end of the the wizard um, that tells me, oh, here on this screen, you're getting a return. The next screen. Yep. You, you got something coming Oh, in This screen you owe up like a thousand dollars. You want to hit back. Go back. Go back. Go back. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're all embedded in systems that seem so complex that they're just beyond us. Um, but when it comes to the basic consensus reality of understanding what's real and 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 knowing knowing enough to be able to make informed decisions, the, the kind of decisions we need to make in a democracy or even for our own health um, and the well-being of our communities, that there is a, uh, there is a basis in reality <laughs> that still matters and we still do have access to it, especially if we hold ourselves accountable, you know, our, our media accountable, our institutions accountable. And you're, and you're right, Jay. One of the motivations for creating the argumentation textbook was also information overload. Like we yeah. know that technology exists. We know that it can be an overwhelming amount of information for students. So to try to teach them skills like arguing when you're not addressing some of the barriers that exist to their ability to participate in those conversations is very difficult. So. The point of the book in some ways is like, yeah, we know technology exists. We know you're getting a lot of information coming at you from places like social media. We know that you get so much more information thrown at you every day than like even when we were uh, kids or college students. And you need to be able to navigate that. And that needs to be talked about in classrooms and it needs to be more a part of books and literature that students read than just like a paragraph about the internet, <laughs> which is what we found in some like older uh, argumentation yeah. books. And so we're like, we need to update it for the life of the current college student and recognize what they're dealing with it and helping them respond. And so Ideally, we've incorporated a lot of these strategies that we've been talking about into curriculum hmm. and helping students benefit from it. Absolutely. Well, and um, thank you for doing that <laughs> <laughs> on behalf of your students and the world. The world. Uh, uh, well, and so that brings me to the question of, you know, speaking of, you mentioned uh, an interest in current events and that motivated 397 this most recent time you mentioned a, a variety of articles that you're writing so the question is what's on the horizon for you is there anything you'd like to plug or talk about in terms of upcoming classes or projects uh, well i do hope to teach the ai uh, class again in a future intercession so if any missouri state students are out there listening, I and you didn't get to take it the first time, I hope that you can again. So you think the AI thing is going to catch on? It's not just a flash in the pan? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, 
I think it's going to catch on. And, you know, you were mentioning things like other additions that it could bring to our uh, curriculum in the yeah. department, you know, whether it be certificate program oriented or otherwise. I really hope that I can participate in some efforts to get things like this more embedded uh, in our curriculum moving forward because I think it's so important not only to the average person but especially people who are will be creating future content as communication and media yeah. uh, professionals so uh, I'm excited to teach that again uh, I think I mentioned I am in the process of completing a book chapter for a book that is about encouraging st college student democratic engagement in an era of polarization. And the chapter I'm writing focuses specifically on AI activities that will be uh, a part uh, of that democratic engagement. I also uh, have been writing about how generative AI will affect the future of democracy both in the sense of disinformation. So I'm presenting at the Broadcast Education Association conference in the research area of the impact of disinformation and misinformation on a democratic society. And my paper is Automating Deception, Generative AI, Disinformation, and the Future of the Liberal Public Sphere, wow. uh, which is gonna be a published collection in a public, published collection after. Uh, the conference, and I also worry about how generative AI might negatively influence the future of communication if we don't harness it. So I hope to be able to expand some of my ethics research into, you know, how we can use generative AI more ethically or what will drive societal moves toward laws or regulations that yeah. help that. And then if those things won't work to completely resolve the problem, what can we do to infuse ethics more into the discussion hmm. about how AI as a whole will be deployed in the future uh, of society? That's some fascinating stuff. Like I said, this has been a um, a much more hopeful conversation than I thought it would be. I feel inspired instead of sad. So, <laughs> well, I understand and I'm worried about the risks that the new technologies and just like the situation society is dealing with. How it could be like one of the horsemen of the apocalypse or multiple. Uh, of them, but uh, I think that hopefully higher education can play a more enhanced role in kind of navigating people toward the positive rather than the negative. But I do think that it requires us as educators taking on a big responsibility of helping society navigate that one thing I talk about is how a lot of the traditional institutions that used to teach ethical behavior have declined 
uh, and what should the role of us as educators be in helping to reinfuse or revitalize a pedagogy of ethics. Yeah. Uh, and I think that will be a topic that becomes even more relevant in the future.